happy uh, to see that you all survived the blizzard of 2020 <laughs> that came through. It's a close call on Friday, man. I didn't know if we were going to make it, but I'm glad to see you all survived the quarter of an inch that we actually got. And sadly, I think that's the most snow we've gotten all winter. So those of you who, like me, who are hoping for a proper snow to play in, uh, I guess we're just going to have to keep waiting, because um, that definitely wasn't it. But uh, glad to see you guys. If you are uh, new to New Life, or you're perhaps visiting with a, a friend or something like that, uh, a special warm welcome to you. My name is Chris. Um, and, and I do just want to say, if you, if you are new, are, are newer here, and I know that there are a good number of you who are, because I look around and I don't know, like half of you. So if you are newer, newer to New Life, I just want you to know that your first step here, the way we've designed the process here, your first step is what we call a Journey 101 luncheon. And that takes place the first Sunday of every month right upstairs. We provide lunch for you, childcare, if you'll sign up and let us know that you're, that you're coming. And so that happens to be next week. And so if you have never been to a Journey 101 luncheon, I just want to personally invite you to come and join uh, Pastor Jonathan, who leads that, I'm, I'm there as well. And uh, we just take about an hour and really just kind of flesh out uh, who we are as a church and where we feel like the Lord is taking us together in the future as a, as a gospel community, as a family of faith. And so um, if you haven't done that, haven't done the Journey 101 deal, let me just encourage you, uh, you can do that on our website or as you exit these doors on your way out, you can actually stop at the Next Steps booth and they can get you registered uh, for that next week. But I hope you'll, you'll take advantage of that if you haven't already, Journey 101 next Sunday. Um, and then you also, if you'll open up your bulletin, you will uh, notice that there's a sheet of paper in there that looks something like this. It's called the 40 Days of Encountering God. And um, if, if you were here last, uh, last month for Vision Sunday, one of the things that we talked about um, in conjunction with our seven big dreams, kind of the five-year uh, goals of, of our church body is that uh, not, not really just with the seven big dreams, but everything that we do here, um, we just believe it all ought to be saturated in prayer. Like everything that we do ought to be covered in prayer. It ought to be umbrellaed in prayer. And so this is just a tool that we want to put in your hands in the Lent season. So kind of the, the 40 days leading up to, to Easter, the Lenten season, which actually begins this this Wednesday, I think. So Hard to think, we're only 40 some odd uh, days out from, from Easter. But every single week for the next uh, few weeks, you'll have one of these that will take you through the next week. Um, in your bulletin, you also can get those in the Loop uh, newsletter that we send out every week. We'll also do a social media post every day. And um, they're just super simple. One of our elders put this, this together. And so if you look like the first, um, the first passage on Wednesday, for example, is Hosea. And you can, you can just read that. So Hosea says, I said, plant the good seeds of righteousness and you will harvest a crop of love. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts for now it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. And then there's just a little prayer underneath it. And so um, you could literally spend 60 seconds on this a day or you could use it as a springboard to go into a deeper, longer uh, time of prayer. So you just use that however the Lord leads you over the next 40 days, and we're just trusting that, man, God's going to do something really amazing um, in and through us uh, this year, particularly leading up to Easter. And so that's a tool that's, that's just there for you. All right, we're going to be jumping back into our uh, series on the book of Ruth, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, open it up, turn it on on your device, and head for Ruth chapter 2. God willing, we're going to finish chapter 2 today. 
and then we'll have two more weeks um, after today uh, in this series. And last week, we saw that, that Ruth's faith, even as a, as a brand new believer, man, she really modeled for us what faith in a famine or the famines of life uh, look like. And so as we saw last week, as Ruth taught us, God's silence does not mean his absence in our life. And man, is that just a really important reality for all of us to grasp onto, that when God seems silent in our life, it does not mean that he's absent in our life. It does not mean that he's abandoned us. And Ruth taught us that last week. We also saw last week as Ruth and Naomi left Moab, like this really wicked nation that worshiped uh, this, this really awful, evil, demonic God where people were sacrificing their, their little kids to this God. So they left Moab. They go back to Bethlehem to, to get into the presence of God, to be with the people of God. And yet they arrived back in Bethlehem impoverished, right? They, they both were recently widowed. Naomi and Ruth are undoubtedly at this point after the journey, they're hungry. And we know that they're, they're homeless. And yet we see Ruth finds favor in uh, this particular field. And so the plot line begins to shift in chapter two, right? So we start to see things turn in chapter two. We saw a new character sort of burst onto the scene of this narrative, a guy named Boaz, whose name literally means, in the Hebrew, strength is within him. And so he's a strong man. He points Ruth to God's love by showing her grace. Uh, Boaz speaks kindly to Ruth. He encourages her. He gives her food. He actually prays over her. He protects her. He also uh, busts out a pretty slick pickup line, which is kind of cool. Um, but ultimately, we know that Boaz is meant to point us to another. He is designed to point us to the one who would actually come to rescue and to restore all who would call upon his name. And this week, we're going to see what essentially amounts to uh, the first date between Boaz and Ruth. And so things start to heat up just a little bit this week, and then uh, next week, things get downright hot in the kitchen, all right? So uh, some might even call next week a little scandalous, um, but this is, this is a really good story. So we're going to jump right in where we left off last week. So we're in verse 14. Um, if you're not keeping track, verse 14 of chapter 2, that's where we'll start our text this morning. It says this, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, that's, that's Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain, not any grain, roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. So here we see what is in essence, again, the first date between Boaz and Ruth. And he invites her to a meal. So we might imagine this in our, in our mind's eye as a uh, romantic meal over roasted grain. Perhaps some candles flickering on the table. Maybe a little Michael Bublé playing in the background. <laughs> Perhaps a little Barry White for those of you more mature in years. A meal, a meal is always a good first move for a first date, isn't it? Because there's something, about, there's something about sharing a meal with someone that allows you to connect with them get to know them in, in, in maybe a deeper way than you could otherwise. I, I remember uh, for, for, for mine and Cheryl's first date after um, we, we met in the, the campus gym and she was just so blown away by my otherworldly strength. Um, I, I, you, you missed that story last week. But anyway, uh, I, even after that, which was a big confidence boost for me, by the way, um, I still was scared to death to ask her on, on a date. 
And those are, that was pre like texting, pre Facebook Messenger or whatever. You young people have it easy now. I actually had to go and talk to her. And so I, I mustered up all the, all the courage that I had, which wasn't a whole lot. And I, and I just said, hey, I, you know, my, my friends and I were throwing a cookout Friday night and, you know, would love for you to, to come with me. And, and she said yes, that she would come with me. And um, so I went out and I bought food for both of us. And we went over to my friend's house and we were having this party. And um, I went outside, man. And I, I, I cooked our, our meal to perfection. And then I, I plated it up and had it organized just right. And I came inside the house and I, and I served her her plate. And it was, it was beautiful. We had a movie playing. There were probably 30, 40 people in the house. But I can tell you right now, we were not watching that movie. Um, at all. In fact, I think it was Monsters, Inc. I had to go back and watch it last year because I didn't know anything that happened in that movie. We were not watching the movie. We were engrossed with one another. We were engrossed in conversation, and it was like everybody else in that room, 30 or 40 people just melted away, and it was just her and I, and it was, it was glorious. And that's kind of the scene I think we get here in chapter two. They're in this room with lots of other people, but really, there are only two people there. It's Boaz and Ruth. And then in that First day, Boaz, I think, drops another pretty epic line at the table with Buble spinning in the background. He goes, hey, hey, Ruth, you can, um, you can dip your morsel in my wine anytime you want, baby. <laughs> dip your morsel in my, my wine all day, every day, Ruth. You can do that. Boaz, what a, what a guy, right? By the way, he's got, Boaz has got way better pickup lines uh, than the ones that dudes were using when I was coming up, right? So we... When I was coming up, we had stuff like, hey, girl, did it hurt? Did what hurt? When you fell from heaven, because you look like an angel, right? It's corny. Boaz has got better stuff. Boaz has better material. He knows the pathway to a lady's heart, good food, and kind words. Single dudes, you ought to be taking notes right now. You have to wonder, though, how long it had been for Ruth since her belly was full, right? It had, it had been a while. But the text tells us she finds satisfaction at the table of Boaz. Now notice it says in the text that she ate until she was satisfied and then she even had some left over. Now I think this should in some sense remind us of the story in the Gospels of the feeding of the 5,000 that takes place in Matthew 14, a couple other places in the Gospels. At, at this point in the narrative in Matthew 14, these, these huge crowds, I mean just massive crowds are coming out. They're tracking with Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're coming out to hear him preach because they'd never heard anybody preach with such authority before. They're coming out with their sick, the sick people that they know because Jesus is healing people. And so there's this massive crowd and they're out there, they're listening to Jesus. All these great things, amazing things are happening. It starts to get late in the day, so I don't know. We can suppose maybe six o'clock, seven o'clock in the evening. And his disciples come to Jesus and they interrupt him. like, hey, we, we have to send all these people away because it's getting late. And we don't have any food to feed these people. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, listen, listen don't, don't send them away. We're, we're going to feed them. And they're like, Jesus, you don't understand. We, we actually have already thought of this. We've canvassed the crowd. We've done kind of an inventory research on how much food we have. And the only thing we have are five little loaves of bread and two fish. Like there's no way, Jesus, that we can feed thousands of people with this little basket of food. And Jesus says, no, 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 bring, bring it over here. And uh, he prays over the food, and then miraculously, they're able to feed this crowd of thousands and thousands of people. And the Gospels use this very same language we find in Ruth 2. It says, they ate and they were all satisfied. 
and then they had 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Very similar imagery here with Ruth, in Ruth with Boaz and in the Gospels with Jesus, and that's not, that's not a coincidence. And what Ruth learned and what I think we are meant to see here, and this is kind of the first big idea or big truth this morning, number one is this. Satisfaction is found at the Redeemer's table. Satisfaction is found at the Redeemer's table. I love the way uh, David puts this in Psalm 107. This will be on the screens for you. He writes this, for he, that is God, God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now we are, we are all in some way chasing satisfaction in life, are we not? We're all, we're all chasing satisfaction, man. We, we look for it in all sorts of things. We look for it in entertainment, we look for it in our relationships. Oftentimes we even seek it in food or drink, in our jobs, in our social networks, in our hobbies, on vacations, you name it. We are all satisfaction chasers in life. But what we all eventually find out, if we haven't already, is that there ultimately is only one table that we can pull up to and feast and be forever satisfied. And that's the table of the Redeemer, the one whom Boaz foreshadows or points us to, and that is Jesus Christ. Boaz, in this text, and really the, the, whole, the whole book of Ruth, I think he's also teaching us something here about what godly leadership looks like. So if you've been tracking with Boaz, if you've been watching his interaction with Ruth and his workers and everybody that he comes in contact with, you've probably noticed something about Boaz. He's, he's hospitable. Uh, he's, he's generous, he's not stingy. He's kind, he's encouraging, he's loving, he's caring, he's protective. He's not self-seeking at all. And in a culture like the one in which we live where men are oftentimes abusive on the one end of the spectrum or passive on the other end of the spectrum, both by the way, which are our sins. Now we tend to highlight in our culture the, the, the abuse and, and rightfully so, as men we were never created to be abusive, but oftentimes we forget the other end of that spectrum, which is male passivity. Both are, are the result of, of the fall. In fact, if you go back to the Genesis 3 narrative, I'd argue that the first human sin was actually not when Eve ate the forbidden fruit. I'd argue that the first human sin was actually Adam's passivity. Uh, in fact, the, the Genesis narrative tells us that when Eve ate the fruit, she gave some to her husband who was where? What does the text say? Do you remember Genesis 3? Who was there with her. In other words, Adam watched the whole thing go down and did nothing. He abdicated his responsibility to love Eve, to protect Eve, to slay the serpent, to combat the lies that she was being told, and he stood there like a passive coward. And so, man in the room, Boaz stands out to us as an example of how we are to lead and love in our homes, in our church, in our communities, in our cities, in the world around us. How we are to serve our wives. How, are we, how we are to speak kindness and encouragement into their hearts. How we are to pray over them and with them and for them and protect them and treasure them. Boaz models all of this for us. He's not... He's not abusive at all. He doesn't use his power to get what he wants, which he certainly in his day as a wealthy, influential businessman, business owner could have done. 
but he doesn't use his power, he doesn't use his influence to abuse anybody, but he's also not the least bit passive. He is modeling what God designed for men to be, strong, present, loving, caring, self, self-sacrificing, selfless. This is, men, this is a good example for us to look to in, in Boaz here. Verse 15, when she arose, that Ruth, when Ruth arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her, or your translation may say rebuke her. And also, this is, this is kind of funny, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, at this point, again, things get sort of comical because Boaz, this is the picture that we get. Boaz goes over to his workers and he says, listen, not only are you to let Ruth glean anywhere she wants in the field, I want you guys to harvest some food for her and just kind of accidentally drop it around so that she'll find it. And when she finds it, you'd better not rebuke her. You'd be sweet to her. So we get this picture now where the harvesters are intentionally dropping the food around like, oops, hey, Ruth, I just, I'm so clumsy. I just dropped this huge stack of food over here and Boaz said, it'll kill me if I don't let you get it. So you come up and there's somebody over like, oh, dang, Ruth, I also dropped some over here and over here and she just keeps getting it and it's kind of comical. Like this isn't just a little bit of grace that Boaz is extending. This is an avalanche of grace. This is laughable grace. This is absurd grace. You almost have to imagine at this point that Ruth, Ruth has to be blushing a little bit, right? Like she knows, what's, she knows the game. She knows what's going on. This is an overflow of grace. This is grace stacked on top of grace. She's gotta be just kind of grinning to herself, shaking her head, blushing a little bit. Man, this is a beautiful picture of the abundant grace that we find in the presence of God. Now listen, don't miss this. The closer Ruth gets to Boaz, the more she draws near to him, the more she's in his presence, the more of his blessings she experiences. Now this leads us to our second big idea this morning, and this is important. Number two, the blessings of God are always found in the presence of God. The blessings of God are always found in the presence of God. You say, Crystal, that, that seems super obvious, but the reality is so many of us want the blessings of God apart from the presence of God. But the truth of the matter is, man, we, we can never divorce his blessings from his presence. Now, I'm, listen, I'm not talking prosperity gospel stuff here, which, as I've said many times, is a false gospel. I'm not, I, I am not saying if you love Jesus well enough, man, you're going to get to drive a Bentley and you have a beach house in Europe. That is not the gospel. That is hot, hot garbage. What I'm saying and what Ruth is showing us here is that everything we want and everything we need to make us happy and satisfy us deeply in our hearts is found, listen, in the presence of God. Everything that we desire, everything that we want, everything that we need to make us happy is found only in the presence of God. This reminds me of the words of King David in Psalm 16. Look at this, it'll be on the screen for you. He writes this, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy, where? Where will we find joy? Where will we find happiness? Where will we find satisfaction? In your presence. You want joy? You want the path of life? Where is it found? David says, 
in the presence of God. And what else will we find there? With eternal pleasures at your right hand. I read that and I think in my mind, sign me up for that. I want some of that. Give me, I want some of that. The blessings that you seek in your life, friend, are found in the presence of your creator. Why? Because he is a good and loving father. Look at verse 18 and, and Ruth, and she took it up. That's the, the bundle of food that she had collected from everybody just throwing her stuff everywhere and went into the city. In fact, the text tells us that she gathered an ephah of barley. Can you believe that she could even pick up an ephah of barley? Is that crazy? You're probably wondering, what is an ephah of barley? I'm so glad you asked because I studied that this week. All right, an ephah of barley is somewhere between, scholars believe, somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of produce. Somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of produce. So she, she picks that up and she goes into the city, pick it back up. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So the first takeaway that I have after reading that portion, because I'm weird and I have ADD and this is the stuff I think about when I read the Bible, my first takeaway is Ruth is jacked up, all right? She's, she is strong, man. Now, don't, don't put that in your notes. That's for free. That's not part of the deal. Now, I don't know. Listen, I don't know when the last time you took a 30 to 50-pound bag of cement or horse feed or something like that and just slung it over your shoulder and walked a few miles into the city. But what I know is Ruth is hitting the CrossFit gym, all right? <laughs> this, this is impressive, it, this, this actually, this reminds me of um, soon after I began to follow Jesus. Uh, I was 20 years old and, and I was in college and I signed up for a mission trip, my very first mission trip to go to Honduras. And so there had just been like a massive, I can't remember if it was a hurricane or something like that, but lots of devastation. And so it was kind of a disaster relief deal, went down there and it was awesome. I mean, that, it was a life-changing experience for me. I, I tell people all the time, I think every Christian ought to go on one global mission trip in their lives because it absolutely revolutionized your worldview. It was amazing. And um, so we we're doing BBS stuff for kids during the day. We're going to this little shack of a church at night, um, sharing the gospel with people. And during the day, we we're rebuilding um, houses that, that had been just blown away. And um, so one of our projects was uh, rebuilding these, these homes on top of this, this mountain or this hill. I don't know, it was big, whatever it was. And um, so the truck pulled up, and they, there were just these massive bags of, of concrete or, or cement that we had to haul up to the top of the mountain so we could begin to, to redo these, these, these houses. And um, at the time, and I, I worked out uh, pr pretty, pretty well, pretty consistently, and I, I thought I was in shape. And um, I might have even had, like, some, some cut-off, you know, shirt or something like that so people could see the gun show. I was such a moron. And... Um, and so I grab my first bag of cement, man, and I, I get halfway up the mountain, and I'm, I'm moving it, and I'm huffing it, and, and I only have to stop one time to take a breather. I mean, this thing is heavy, and it's a big, big mountain. And so I finally get to the top of this thing, and I put it down, and I'm huffing and puffing, and I'm kind of feeling good about myself, and man, I wonder if anybody saw me do that. And I, I, look, I look down the hill, and I kid you not, there are half a dozen hundred moms and grandmas that have one bag on each shoulder. So they got, they have, they have two, and they're like slow jogging up the hill, like without, without stopping at all. 
And my self-esteem went from like a 10 to like a two in about one second. And I thought, oh man, I gotta switch up the workout routine, man. Or more kettlebells or you know something, because this, this is not working out. This, this is Ruth, man. She is, she is beasting out there, making the boys look bad. She is quite the impressive uh, woman, Ruth is. And so she takes all this food back to uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi. And I love Naomi's reaction here. Now keep in mind, Naomi is in the dark. She doesn't know anything that has happened. She doesn't know that she found favor in Boaz's field and that, man, he's just showering her with grace and that they had this kind of romantic first date. Um, man, Naomi, she's still sitting wherever she was sitting. She's sitting in a, I don't know, under a bridge or in a tent or something, and she's still hungry. She's still depressed. She's still bitter. She's still upset at God. In verse 19, this is cool. And her mother-in-law, when Ruth walks in with all this stuff, um, her mother-in-law said to her, where, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, this is what a lot of sort of commentary writers call the beginning of the revival of Naomi. Now, if you'll remember back a couple of weeks ago, uh, Naomi's name is actually a Hebrew word that means sweet. And so her nickname in those days, if you're from the South, it would have been like sweetie. Like everybody just called her sweetie or sweetie pie. But after she lost her husband and her two sons, she actually told people in chapter one, hey, don't, don't, call, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me sweet anymore. In fact, call me Mara, which means bitter. She actually changes her name from sweet to bitter. She's just this bitter old woman at this point in her life. And she sees Ruth come in with a doggy bag of food from her date with Boaz and this huge bag of barley large enough to feed them for weeks on end. And Naomi is just, she's giddy. It's almost like she doesn't know what to say. She's just kind of stumbling over a word. She begins to kind of repeat the same questions. Where do you go? Where did, who did you work for? Who, when, how? And then she goes, blessed be the man who did this. All right, so, so now we have Miss Bitter Bridges. Now she's blessing everybody. <laughs> bless this man, as we'll see. Bless God in a minute and bless the sky and bless the grass. And, man, she is, she is giddy. This is awesome. She cannot believe her eyes. Pick it up in the middle of verse 19. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked and said, now notice the way Ruth builds, or the narrator builds anticipation for who this man is that's shown her all this grace. Remember, Naomi has no clue who this is. So watch this. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name, see, she could have just said Boaz, right? She doesn't. The man's name with whom I worked five miles from here Starting at six o'clock in the morning, he was kind of handsome. His name is Boaz. And you just kind of cue the heroic music playing in the background. And at this point, we have to almost picture Naomi's eyes getting really wide. And perhaps a sly little grin breaks out on her face because she knows exactly who Boaz is. See, Ruth at this point doesn't even know the significance of who Boaz is, but Naomi knows. Look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness. Now that word kindness is a really important um, Hebrew word throughout the book of Ruth. It's the Hebrew word called hesed. All right, so this, this word hesed, we, we actually don't even have an English equivalent for this word. We have to use multiple words to describe what hesed means. Now hesed is a word that God in the Old Testament uses to describe himself. 
It's actually used about 250 times in the Old Testament, so it's a very prevalent theme. And the word hesed, I think the best English translation we have is the loving kindness of God, but even that is not sufficient. Hesed actually means love, it means mercy, it means grace, it means kindness, it means commitment and loyalty. It's this idea of covenantal love. It's this idea of love that will not stop, love that continues to pursue regardless of the actions of the one being pursued. And so when she says, when Naomi says, the Lord's hesed, his loving kindness, she is actually saying that all of these things are true about God, right? So she's now blessing everybody, bless Boaz and bless God and bless everybody, right? And she continues, she says, uh, the Lord whose loving kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man The man is a close relative of ours. He's actually one of our redeemers. So now Naomi is letting Ruth in on the secret. See, Boaz is not just this great guy. He is actually a family redeemer or what some scholars call a kinsman redeemer. Now, unless you've studied ancient Hebrew culture, that likely means very little to you. But for Ruth and Naomi, this was absolutely a massive deal. Because here's the deal, in ancient times, when someone either owed a debt that they could not pay, or when women would become widows with no children to care for them, because in this society, that basically made them like slaves, made them destined for a life of poverty and abuse. But God, in his loving kindness, in his hesed, he put a clause into that culture, something called a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25 and several other places. And a family redeemer could redeem people like Ruth and Naomi out of their hopeless situations. Now, a redeemer couldn't just be anybody. A redeemer had to have three qualifications before they could actually redeem somebody out of slavery or poverty. First of all, the first requirement is they had to be a relative. So it couldn't just be any Joe Schmo off the street. They actually had to be related to the person. So they had to have a right to redeem a family member. They had to have a right to redeem them. The second qualification is that they not only had to be a relative, they also had to have the resources to redeem somebody. In other words, they had to, they had to be somebody that had the, the financial, the material resources to do this because it wasn't cheap. It was actually typically a very expensive thing. So they had to be a relative, they had to have the resources, and then finally, they had to have the willingness. So even if you had somebody who was related and had the, the means to do it, they also had to have the desire to redeem somebody out of poverty because this was a big sacrifice to redeem somebody. It was typically time-consuming. It was also very expensive. And so Naomi leans over when she hears who it is that it's Boaz. She leans over to Ruth, and she's like, you are never going to believe this. You're never going to believe this, but Boaz, he's actually one of our family redeemers. He's actually one of our, one of our kinsmen redeemers. And I can kind of just picture Naomi at this point being like, and I think he likes you, and I think he loves you. Right? She's, she's doing the happy dance at this point. And Ruth's like, well, he did tell me to come and stay with him for the whole barley harvest, which scholars tells us would have been another six or seven weeks. So verse 21, and Ruth, the Moabite said, beside he, Boaz, said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So again, it's going to be weeks and weeks, a couple months maybe. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, 
it is good. That's good news, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So this is your typical mother-in-law. I think she's already planning the wedding in her head. Like, man, we can, we can get the dress over here. And I know a good photographer and on the east side of Bethlehem. And she's like, yeah, girl, this is a good idea. I like this idea. You go work with him for the next six or seven weeks because you're going to be safe there. Now, you may not be safe in some other dude's field, but you are going to be safe in the field of Boaz. So again, we see the protection of Boaz here. He's a safe place. There is peace and there is safety. There is security in his presence. Verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law, which means, again, She's working in the fields with Boaz for the next six, seven, maybe even eight weeks. And the chapter ends with, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, you got to admit, that's kind of an anticlimactic ending to what has been a very exciting chapter. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Apparently, these six or seven weeks go by, and not much is happening between Boaz and Ruth. They're just in this, it appears from the text, they're in this season of, of waiting. And so we're sort of, as the audience, we're left with questions in our mind. Well, like, man, what, what's gonna happen here? Is, is Boaz going to redeem Ruth? Is he, is he gonna marry her? Will he rescue them from their poverty in a, in a more permanent way? And you have to imagine, even for Boaz, there had to have been a lot of thoughts swirling around in his mind during these six to eight weeks, and we end the chapter with them all in a season of waiting. And if you're like me, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, Boaz, what are you waiting on, man? What do you, like, make your move, man. Close the deal. Put, put a ring on it, man. What are, you, what are you doing? And we are left with, instead of that, we're left with a scene of weeks and weeks and weeks of waiting. And even in this picture, I think there's actually rich truth and rich application for us here. So here's, here's the next big truth. Number three, believer, in your waiting, always trust God's timing. In your season of waiting, and we all have seasons of waiting in our life, do we not? It seems like half of our life is, is that, it's that season. It's praying and asking for God to move. It's asking for him to do something in us waiting on his response. And so believer, in your season, in our season of waiting, we must learn to trust God's timing. And let's not get it twisted and feel like we've gotta manipulate things and we've gotta control things and we've gotta make things happen because they're not happening as quickly as we would like them to do and we try to manipulate and God, I'll show you how to do this because you're not working quick enough. Friend, be careful of that. Learn to trust God in the seasons of waiting. Now, that's, that's hard to do, I realize, because if you're anything like me, you're probably an impatient person. Like, I want God to work now. Like, I pray, and I open my eyes, and I'm like, ain't nothing changed yet, God. Why aren't, what's wrong with you? Why, why aren't you listening? And yet, it is in our waiting that oftentimes, God is doing his best work on our behalf. It is. It's often in our seasons of, of waiting that God is doing his best work on our behalf. I like the way uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it. I'll have this on the screens for you. Lewis says, 
I am sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for them to wait. I love that. I'm sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is actually for their good that they wait. And so we learn to trust in the wait. Believer, never underestimate what God is doing in your season of waiting. Never underestimate what God is doing in your season of waiting. And as we'll see the next two weeks, beginning next week, actually, the wait is going to be worth it for Ruth and Naomi. It's going to be well worth it. God is going to show up. He's going to work some things out. Ruth is going to, as we'll see next week, she's going to make a really bold move. Some might even say a scandalous move next week. But the point is, God comes through, as he always does. God does come through. But listen, friend. God comes through in his timing, not in our timing. But he, 100% of the time, comes through in his timing. And we're going to see that starting next week. One last thing, and then we'll, we'll land the plane, and then we'll, we'll worship. Um, and, and this really is kind of the, the big overarching idea of the whole, the whole message. And this is truth number four. Grace takes people who don't belong and makes them belong. Grace takes people who don't belong, have no place to belong, and makes them belong. But you gotta understand, Ruth is a Moabite living in Israel. All right, she's a foreigner. In some sense, she's actually a refugee. She was from the wrong place. She's from the wrong side of the tracks. She was a different race. She's a formal a former idol worshiper. She has no family, no friends in this new place. She's recently widowed. She's childless. She's shamed. In this culture, she would have been considered cursed by God. She was also from Moab. And so these people in Israel at this time were considered despicable, godless. They were considered dirt. And she has no place here until Boaz takes notice of her shows her favor, showers her with an avalanche of grace, and makes space for her at his table. This is a stunning picture of grace here. As we close, this is, this is what I want you to see. What I want you to see this morning is that we are all Ruth in this story. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see that this is not just a really kind of fun, cool love story found in the Bible. This is actually your story. This is your story. Just like Ruth needed a redeemer to rescue her out of her hopeless situation, just like she needed someone to make her belong when she had no place to belong, so you also need a redeemer to rescue you out of your sin and to make you belong when you had nowhere to belong. Can't you see that this story is actually pointing you to your story? That Ruth's story is actually pointing us to a much bigger, much more glorious, beautiful story. Friend, listen to me. The, the Lord of the harvest has looked upon you with favor. The Lord of the harvest has looked upon you with favor, even in your hurt, even in your bitterness, even in your loss and your disappointment, even when you didn't belong. He has looked at you and he feels love and grace and favor and he wants to make you belong in his family. And friend, you need to understand something. Satisfaction in your life, happiness is only gonna be found in his field and at his table and nowhere else. 
And so even if you're where, where Ruth was, where you're walking through a season of pain, a season of famine and hunger and confusion, loss, you need to know this if you know nothing else. There is a good and loving God working behind the scenes on the behalf of everybody who loves and follows him. But listen, friend, you've got to come into his field. And you've got to pull up to his table and be satisfied in his presence. And he's inviting you to do that today if you haven't already. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, you, you are a shelter for all those who come to you, God. Father, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for stepping into our pain. Thank you for showing us that you're always near to us, even when it seems like you're silent. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for teaching us through Ruth that your grace is bigger than our past mistakes, that your grace is bigger than our present pain. God, thanks that you, you desire a future for us where we will be fully satisfied in your field and at your table, God. Thank you that your heart for us is abundant life. And not just, not just abundant life like in heaven one day, God, not just abundant life in eternity, some far off place in space, but your desire for us, God, is actually abundant life right now right in the here and now, God. Even in the seasons of pain and famine and suffering, God, you offer us hope and you offer us a good future, God. So I pray, I pray, Father, right now that if there is even one single person here who has not, not yet crossed that threshold of faith by placing their trust, by placing their faith, and your son, the ultimate redeemer, Jesus, God, if there's somebody here who has not yet done that, God, would you help them? Would you help them? Would you give them the courage to pray something like this with me in silence right now? And so if that's, if that's you, you're here, that's you, I would just encourage you to pray this prayer with me. God, God, I, I realize now more than ever that I, I am like Ruth, that her story is actually my story, that just like Ruth was before she followed you, she, I also, God, I, I love my idols and I, God, I have sinned more than I care to count or remember. But God, I, I see now through this story that you love me. You love me, that you're you're pouring your grace out on me, God, that you came for me, that in Jesus you have shown me favor and you have invited me to sit at your table, God, and I, I want to sit at that table. God, and I want to live in your presence and I don't just want to come here for an hour a week and feel like I'm in your presence. I want to live perpetually, always, every day, every hour, every minute in your presence because your presence is life to me, God, and so right now I'm asking that you would just forgive me of my sin, God. God, please forgive me of my sin. And right now, the best that I know how, I'm just gonna place my faith in you and in Jesus for today and for the rest of my life. And Father, I pray for those of us also who are in the room and we've, we're there, we've been following you for months or years even, God. 
I pray that you would remind us today and you would remind us tomorrow and next week when things get really hard at work or in school, God, and we're tended to forget about you, God, would you remind us to stay in your field at your table? God, help us not, help us not to wonder, help us not to drift into other fields seeking things that we can only find with you and in you. And so, Father, we thank you for loving us with such an extravagant, relentless love. And we pray all of these things in the strong and the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship.